I'm wondering if if you believe rent control would be kind of the most effective way of preventing homelessness. Well, I mean, I don't think it's that complicated. The rent's too damn high. And at a certain point, <laughs> people... I think right. that's copyrighted, Michael. I don't know. If you can... <laughs> well, I mean, uh, then I'm sure that those people who copyright it probably won't mind me stealing it. Uh... <laughs> Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. This is Matt Levin, data journalist with Cal Matters. And this is Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And this week on the podcast, a detour, Liam. Detour. We will be at least temporarily ditching our tour of California to focus on one issue, an issue that's near and dear to, I think, many of our listeners and millions of Californians across the state, which is... Rent control. Which will also be, uh, per Liam Dillon's infallible predictions, the top housing issue of 2018. Completely infallible. I'm like, I'm totally ready to be 100% right because there's really no other way. (laughs) Liam, why don't you uh, describe what we'll be talking about on the podcast today and who we'll be chatting with? Yeah, so we just have a very basic question about rent control which is uh good or bad is it good or bad is it good is it bad just very basic you can't get a more simple question than that and we're going to try our best to to answer that simply uh so a lot of rent control stuff going to be talked about next year there's a legislation from assemblyman richard bloom uh which would repeal uh this law known as costa hawkins which is put into place and that restricts uh local government's ability to implement rent control on any housing built after 1995, and in many cases in large cities, uh, housing that was built much earlier than that. And so that legislation is out there, and we expect that to be a a big fight. And then adding to the fight um, is a ballot measure potentially um, coming to your November 2018 uh, statewide ballot that would do the same thing. Um, And, you know, that has the advantage, I guess, of of, uh, adding some leverage to the debate um, that's going on in in the Capitol. And uh, one of the primary benefactors or, or people behind the ballot measure is Michael Weinstein, who is the head of the AIDS Healthcare Foundation in Los Angeles. And he is who we're talking to. Now, um, Weinstein is a very um, sort of uh, polarizing figure, uh, let's say, in um, statewide and LA politics. He, he ran a number of statewide ballot measures in 2016, uh, one that would have limited um, prescription drug pricing, another one that would have mm-hmm. um, uh, forced uh, condoms uh, for adult film performers. Um, both of those lost. lost. Uh, yeah, and the you know the the, the prescription drug one. I mean that was just uh, you know literally zillions of dollars were spent <laughs> on both sides, but primarily by the pharmaceutical industry to to kill it. Um, so there's that. And then uh, early this spring, he ran a ballot measure in Los Angeles, um, Measure S, that would have. Uh, was a slow growth ballot measure. It would have would have uh, dramatically restricted uh, the city's ability to um, sort of raise densities um, and uh, and build. And so, and that measure uh, also also was defeated. So he's a pretty interesting guy, and we're we're happy to to have in, have had an interesting conversation with him. Yeah, it was a really good interview that touches on the the politics behind his initiative, what he's hoping to get out of it, and then also why he thinks rent control is good policy. Uh, but first, our ever popular segment. Avocado of the week. And yet another quote 
um for the avocado i think i think we are finally distilling the essence of what the avocado of the week was originally meant to be i think we've been hitting it at least last episode in this episode it's a thing someone says that's that's the essence <laughs> no you've reduced it into into something else no <laughs> i think it's indefinable um but well, you just you just told us that we got to the essence and now you're telling us it's indefinable i mean you're really all over it's the like map. pornography you know it when you see it and so okay. I think this, when people hear it, they will say, yes, that's a good avocado, avocado. of the week. Yes. Yeah. So okay. uh, this week's avocado of the week takes us to a place we had previously visited on our tour of California, um, Santa Rosa. And Liam, uh, take it away. Yeah. So Santa Rosa, which, as everyone I'm sure is well aware, is still reeling from um, just awful uh, wildfires uh, earlier this year. And the big question now is is, is turning to how uh, the city is going to rebuild. And so there was a neighborhood that we talked about a lot about uh, that was completely destroyed called Coffee Park, a single family home kind of middle class neighborhood. And there's a lot of debate and discussion about the way in which the neighborhood is going to rebuild. Is it going to remain single family only zoning or or move to, say, more higher density uh, zoning that would potentially add more houses um, to deal with a really tough housing crisis the region that region was facing already. Which was uh, a and question also do it- on our, sorry, sorry to interrupt, which was a question we asked on um, a previous version of the podcast to the mayor of Santa Rosa, who sounded right. amenable to that idea. Exactly. Yeah. And again, it's not just about um, doing it for housing affordability issues, but, you know, as we've discussed or as we will discuss or if we haven't discussed this yet, we should. Um, you know, housing um, issues are really central to the state meeting its environmental goals, too. Uh, you know, you get people uh, to reduce their carbon use, you get them out of cars, and you do that by building houses to closer to where they live and work. And so that's kind of the reasoning behind whether you'd want to uh, allow for more density um, in in this area as, it, as it's rebuilding. And so there was a supervisor uh, from Sonoma County, Shirley Zane, who um, this said... This is so good. This is so said, good. Um, Build it know, up more. Yeah, so well, well, we're getting there's like two quotes. It's like back to back, man. We got the we got the we got the shot and the chaser, right? Okay. So we'll start start with the shot, right? This is what she said, you know, November first, told San Francisco so Magazine that meaning uh, uh, a Kmart um, store uh, uh, in uh, in Coffee Park that would be a great spot to put high quality, high density uh, apartments. We got to look at density, building up, and parks and sidewalks and bus routes, right? And yes. so. Uh, then two days later, two, <laughs> two days later, a statement from, uh, the supervisor's office to, back to San Francisco magazine said, please do not suggest, infer, or otherwise conclude <laughs> that the supervisor believes coffee park should be denser, multi-use, more transit friendly, or significantly reimagined. That's, it's just amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. I and mean, it, go ahead. Yeah, it's just an interesting point because, like, you know, change. It's just, yes. I mean, everything's about change, right? And there's all these, and again, to be perfectly clear, I mean, these, these folks are facing an enormous amount of change. All their houses are gone, right? Um, and the idea of potentially changing what their neighborhood, uh, you know, looked like um, is, is, is in a lot of ways, understandably, doubly scary, right? Um, I, yeah. you know, I, I certainly, I certainly, get that 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 concept yeah. right so it's hard, I, I get, to, it's hard yeah. to call someone a nimby if their backyard has completely burned away yeah yeah and so you know um it, it's just still interesting though that, that this issue is 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 such it remains such a strong um third rail clearly 
right? Um, yeah. When when it you know in in some ways runs counter to to what the state and everyone else said that they want with respect to you know affordability and climate change goals. Well, also exactly the goals that she kind of enumerated are, you know, from most perspectives fairly benign right like these are the goals that any urban planning department should be aspiring to right and then to have to go back and basically retract it (laughs) is it's that's what's amazing it's amazing and so fast yes uh, you know and and so you know we'll see i mean this issue isn't going to go away i'm really interested in watching how this all plays out right um uh and this is not a this is not a quick thing right this is like this is a month long or, or years long process to watch what happens and um, who is the one who gets gets to decide. And there's a, you know, a lot of arguments for um, for who sort of the, the decision makers are going to be. Is it, you know, some sort of subset of the people who are living there who would decide on the zoning, right? Because even if the zoning changes, you know, people don't want want to build a single family house on their property, even if it's permitted for two or a duplex or whatever, still yeah. can build the house, yeah. single family house if they want, right? Yeah. And so um, you know, or do they do they decide the zoning, or does the city, or does the state come in if the state has you know brings money to the table, or does the federal government in some way come in if the federal government brings money to the table? I mean, it's really interesting who the decision makers are going to be um, uh, when when all is said and done in, in terms of how um, how that area is going to rebuild. Um, and on that note, I think it's important to emphasize that she was not the um, local representative for the people in coffee park right which is also which is also interesting because of how still how quickly she had to kind of put it in reverse right it wasn't it wasn't she wasn't talking about a uh change to the zoning rules in her district and then got a bunch of feedback from constituents saying how dare you um it was constituents in a different district right 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 and you know a lot of times you'll even see that among um you know, uh, district-based elected local elected representatives, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, we we're our community doesn't want that. That should be in that that person the next district over. Exactly. That's what they want, or that's what they deserve, or that's what they whatever, right? Um, yeah. more palatable there. And so, uh, yeah, you know, um, that's that's also interesting. Yeah. Um, two great avocados of the week on uh, consecutive consecutive podcast episodes just really nailing the amorphous nature of the avocado so let's move to our number of the week matt what do you got uh the number of the week this week is one hundred and nineteen thousand six hundred and twenty five dollars which is a very specific number that is and it sounds like it's, it's a pretty good chunk of change that is an amount that i would like to see in my bank account yeah so what why, why is that the number of the week that is the savings that Older tenants who were lucky enough to enjoy rent control in San Francisco saw accumulate uh, from 1994 until 2012. So where did that number come from? I mean, because it it wasn't you. You couldn't figure that shit out, so... (laughs) (laughs) No, I I couldn't make it as defensible, certainly. Right. Um, Yes. Uh, So that number comes from a... God, I want to say explosive, but I think that's just betraying my interest in this more than anybody else's. Uh, a interesting new study from a, a trio of Stanford economists that, uh, using a novel data set, uh, was able to gauge the effects of rent control in San Francisco over a 20-year period. And that came out last month. Yeah, so 
how novel was this? I mean, everyone, I mean, I read this and I said, hey, novel data set. And everyone on Twitter was like, what a novel data set. So what, what, what was so novel? What was so novel about this thing? Well, let's, let's start here first. So yeah. in terms of rent control research, there is not as much empirical research into the effects of rent control as I think a lot of people would imagine there there is. There's kind of two categories of research on rent control. There's stuff that is related to classic economic theory and how it should play out in real life, right? So we can get into this a little more later, but, you know, the basic economics of rent control aren't good. Um, it should have a bunch of... Bad. Yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, but I'm just trying to, I'm just the, trying to hue to our theme. Right? I know. Okay. Listeners, yeah. listeners shouldn't make that judgment right now. Just hold okay. on for another, you know, fifteen to twenty minutes of me boring you, and then you can then you can make your judgment. In classical economics, rent control not a good thing. There isn't much research into okay, this is what actually happens in real life when you either give people rent control or take it away. Um, it's very very difficult to do that research, um, and this was because of the data set they acquired, which we can get into a little bit later. This was one of the most robust studies looking at how this actually happens in real life that we've seen so far. And it couldn't come at a better time. Right. Because as we said at the top, we got this big rent control debate coming, uh, both the ballot measure and and the legislation. And so, um, you know, this study is funny. I was reading, I read the top line of the study on like a Friday and then I came, you know, over the weekend and said, oh, I'm going to I'm going to read the rest of this study. And then I got to Saturday afternoon and there was a lot of math in there, man. And yeah. I was like, you know, this is more of a Monday project for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, but you're the you're the one with the policy degree. So you're the one who should, right. you should you should tell us um, what what were the what were the key findings in this? Sure. Uh, so, OK, so there are just to be completely transparent, there are elements of this study the math I could follow. And then there are elements of this study, particularly when it comes to calculating kind of the, the benefits and costs of rent control and kind of the decisions they made to structure that out that I could not, I just, I couldn't follow it. Um, but the study as a whole reigned to me as th- this was good. This was a empirically very well done study. Um, do you want to go through the study first or do you want to kind of set the stage in terms of what rent control in California currently looks like, what it looked like in San Francisco, and then kind of get into the the nitty gritty of the study. Yeah, yeah. Tell us, tell us what what. So, how does rent control in San Francisco work? Sure. So, it was uh, passed initially in 1979. Diane Feinstein was mayor of San Francisco at the time. You may know her um, as your sitting U.S. senator, at least yes. for now. Basically. Uh, Rent control could only apply to units constructed before 1979 in San Francisco. Um, The wrinkle to San Francisco rent control laws that these uh, economists from Stanford was able to were able to exploit was that in 1994, before Costa Hawkins, um, there was a ballot initiative that sought to close a loophole in San Francisco rent control laws. So those San Francisco rent control laws, there was a certain number of units that you had to have to be subject to rent control. So small uh, buildings that had, I think, less than four units weren't subject to rent control. 
1995, they put a measure on the local ballot to change that. So if you were renting and you had a small apartment building, you would be subject to rent control. Um, and it passed. That ballot initiative applied to rent controlled units that were built before 1980. Um, so those tenants, in any type of study, what you really want is as close as you can get to imitate a uh, randomized control experiment, right? You want a treatment group and a placebo group, right? Just like you would if you were wanting to see whether a drug actually worked. Does that are you? Does that make yes, sense? Yes, I'm, I'm I'm riveted, man. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> I know I can. Sometimes Matt explaining gets a little circular. No, so. I'm I'm uh, you know this okay. is keep going. So that's the gold standard, right? That's how you yeah. tell if your drug is effective or not. Is if in the treatment group, uh, right. you actually see people you know recover from cancer, and in the placebo group things don't go so well, right? So right, So what you're saying is rent control is like cancer, so also bad. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> so in this, in, in this particular study, they have what's called, it's a natural experiment. So they, because of the particularities of this ballot initiative, you had people who were in these small apartment building units that were built before 1980 who got to enjoy rent control and then you had people in small apartment in small apartment building units built after 1980 who did not enjoy rent control and if you right. compare the effects on those two groups you can get a much more nuanced understanding of how did rent control really impact people um, over time yeah. does that make so sense they yeah, now they got okay. that novel data set, which is what, what – so tell us what that is. What that, yeah, what that. sure. So it's it's basically – there's two major elements to this. So one, they got a, a data set that basically they could track individual residents in rent-controlled and non-rent-controlled buildings over 20 period over twenty years wherever they moved. So they could tell whether which you're – pretty yes, amazing. Yes, that it is, it is amazing. And it was from yeah, I, some yeah, private I mean, data firm. Yeah, I mean, I've moved like, gosh, like, like six times in the last ten years, at least, right? And I just the fact that there would be data on that is a terrifying, yes. uh, but b b pretty valuable to a study like this. Yes, there are um, research benefits to the Orwellian data collection <laughs> night nightmare we currently live in. So, what do they find? Well, I got a list of stuff that they uh, that they found. So the, in this kind of benefit-cost analysis that they did, people who were in rent-controlled units uh, received an aggregate benefit of $7 billion over that period. Most of that benefit went to older tenants who were lucky enough to be in rent-controlled units. So, you know, something really interesting, I cited that $120,000 figure right. um, earlier that's for 40, people who were 40 or more. Younger tenants do not benefit as much from rent control. Their, their, okay. to, their total kind of per capita um, savings, for lack of a word, from it was around 40-something grand. And that's primarily because if you're, if you're younger— um, There isn't a crew. The time is the same, the same. It's sort of like Prop 13, right? Prop 13, the longer you're in your house, the better your, your, your tax bill is compared to everybody else. It's the same thing. No, it's it, no. It, we're we're still talking about they they were both in rent controlled units in 1994. Um, it's it's more 
you are more likely to move out of your rent control unit because of your individual circumstances. If right. You're, okay. If, if you're if you're in your twenties, right, you're more likely to get a different type of job that takes you into a different location. You're sure. more likely to start a family. Um, sure. You want to move to I don't know uh, Marin. Right. <laughs> uh, good luck. Yeah. Um, so that I think that's important in terms of kind of disaggregating who is benefiting the most from rent control. And it, at least in San Francisco in this time period, it is older, older rental. Sorry, Mike. Uh, if you hear the sound of a cat, it's because there's a cat here. Um, <laughs> it's, that's not sound effects that we added in post-production. Um, it's, so going back to who benefits and who, who doesn't as much, um, it is primarily older people. Okay, so that's, that's the picture of the rent control person that is really, really, really benefiting from rent control that you should have in your head. Got it. So for them, rent control then good. Very good. Very good. Yes. Okay. Let's keep. I like this structure. Let's do this. Yeah. So good. And even for younger people who are in rent control buildings, good. good but, but not, not as, as good. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So who is rent control? Is it bad? Bad? I mean, landlords, sure. But like, yes. is it bad for like normal people? <laughs> so the, the, the real group you should look at is renters who do not enjoy rent control. Um, and so it is it is bad. Uh, and the, I'll the, the effect is a cumulative $5 billion loss um, to those renters. Now, if you look at, if you kind of compare those figures um, and you say a $7 billion gain versus a $5 billion loss, it looks like there's a net gain, at least among renters. Um, yeah. And that, that would be true according to this study. Uh, I also want to talk quickly about the likelihood that you would stay at your address. Can we talk about that? Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, <laughs> tell us. People who were in these rent controlled apartments were 10 to 20% more likely to stay in those apartments. Um, I don't really have context for processing that. That sounds like, okay, that sounds like rent control was decently effective at getting people to stay in their apartments. Um, a couple interesting wrinkles to that is when you actually look at the overall percentages, so not just the percent, how the not just the increased likelihood that you'll stay at your place, but the percentage of rent control people who stay at their place versus the percentage of non-rent control people who stay at their place, it is not that big a difference. Um, so I'm going to bring up those numbers right now, uh, which I put in a spreadsheet. Did you get to this part of the study, Liam? Man, I, I got, I got, I got, I got, I got distracted the first Sigma. So, uh, <laughs> so I, cause I think this is important just in terms of how people put rent control in context. So out of all people who don't have rent control, how many people in San Francisco over this time period, how, what percentage of them do you think were living at the same address, uh, in 2012 that they were in 1994? I can't imagine many. Well, put put a ballpark number out there. I don't know. Uh, As a percentage. 20, 15%. That's not bad. So about uh, a little over 11%. Okay. Uh, which, honestly, that I was surprised it was that high. Yeah. Uh, now for rent-controlled units. for So people who enjoyed rent control, no matter what your age. Uh, 25%. 
12.8%. Huh. So it, it huh. is it is a how do I put this? A significant but small difference. So All talk right. about talk about the the landlord side of this cuz there's like a there's a pretty a pretty uh, strong line in this study that has gotten a lot of attention. Um, and you know, it talks about how um, uh, landlords have decided to try to, to you know, as you said, try to turn over um, rent-controlled properties to to condos and all those other sorts of things they can do to, um, I guess, try to get out of this scheme. And yes, you know, do you want to read a line? Uh, I'm actually not 100% sure of the of the line okay. you're so, referring so, to, but I I mean, go ahead. So so yeah, so the substitution toward owner occupied and high end new construction rental yes. housing likely fueled the gentrification of San Francisco as yes. these types of properties cater to high-income individuals. And, you know, uh, econo- well-reasoned economic studies saying rent control fueled the gentrification of San Francisco is, that's a pretty, uh, you know, alarm-sounding um, statement, no? Yes, and that, that was the headline you saw in most of the coverage around this. Now, now so I what, know what you're does that mean? That. I, I think that is actually specifically referring to an element in the study where um, talking about whether rent control was good or bad for different types of people. If you were rent controlled in an area where um, there was a massive appreciation in rental prices around you, um, you are actually less likely to stay in your home than someone who wasn't rent controlled, which is somewhat astounding. What what that means is that, but if, if you're in a neighborhood that's you know already kind of starting to gentrify, um, the landlord is going to be really, really, really eager to get you out of there. Right. <laughs> really, right. really, really eager. Um, and so that is part of what's motivating that claim that yeah. rent control leads to gentrification. Um, uh-huh. the, the other the other component of it is simply that they they tie rent control and the conversion of units to condos to a overall increase in rents of about seven percent. So simply, uh-huh. not so simply actually, but taking stuff off of the market um, makes rents go higher. Um, yeah, and. You know, because they're kind of converting to condos, you know, they're not they're not converting to, I don't know, Litec financed affordable housing units. Right. Like sure. they, it, they're going to be attracting maximum rents. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah. So it so it sounds like the, sounds like the takeaways from this paper is that rent control is good, comma, bad uh, yes. and good, comma, bad, depending on the person who the position you're in. Right. I mean, obviously, it been this. Some of this is relatively common sense, right? It's 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 and and they're what they're doing here is certainly quantifying all of this, which is a huge advance, right? But but you know, obviously, anyone anyone in the apartment rent control department, it's good, right? Yes. Um, and for those who are not, that's bad, you know. Yes. Um, and and that gets to kind of a point that I want to I kind of want to talk about, and, and I think hopefully will be raised and be part of the political debate on this issue as we you know as we talk about this throughout 2018, but. Um, so there's a there's a moral question. I don't know what the right answer is. You know, I, I think there's good good arguments on on both sides of this. But the you know rent control protects people who are already in a place to stay there, right? Yep. But there's a lot of argument that it it restricts the ability for people who are from another place yep. to move in. Um, and so you know why someone in um you know Riverside um can't move to you know uh, the economic opportunity they would is in Los Angeles um. 
you know, through in part because of these, of these policies potentially, I think is a, an interesting, you know, moral question. Is the person who's in a rent control unit in LA, should they be prioritized over someone who would like to move to where there's a job in LA now, but can't? Yeah. Um, and I think part of that too is that there is no element inherent to rent control that allocates rent control department to people based off of income, right? Yeah. In in other words, rent control doesn't work by saying um, you only make X amount of money, you get a rent controlled unit. Rent control works by saying this building was built before X time. You that that building is rent controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's how it works in California. So what else do you think? You know, and again, we're going to be talking about this issue, uh, I think, a lot next year. But like, yeah. what else? What else do you think it, as we kind of uh, consider it now? It was good to know from the study or, or anything else that that that's out there. Um, so if you're looking at California. Yeah, I think importantly, there's a distinction to be made between what happens when you expand rent control, which is, seems like it's going to be a pretty major topic of debate next year in which this study speaks to in a way that previous studies haven't, versus what happens if you take away rent control, right? So, uh-huh. you know, you might criticize rent control as ineffective and inefficient, um, but uh, if it's already there, how has it already impacted the market? And if you did away with it, what would happen? Um, and so one of the, something that kind of drove home how embedded rent control is in places like San Francisco was something put out by the Bay Area Economic Council, um, which, which is hardly a, uh, a bastion of socialism, you know? (laughs) Yes. Um, it's a business group in the Bay Area. That's right. And, uh, and you know, from, from what I can tell, I haven't read, everything they've done but i you know as opposed to some other kind of business aligned advocacy groups they 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 make a good faith effort to make their research as empirically sound as as possible so so let me put that out there um not everybody does that uh anyway they went ahead and they modeled if we took x y and z policy how would it impact housing affordability for um all san franciscans and they looked at a bunch of different policies, um, inclusionary zoning. They looked at uh, banning home sharing. They looked at uh, uh, putting a moratorium on development in the mission, um, all of which ideas have been circulating in San Francisco for a while. But they also looked at, okay, what if we did away with rent control? What would happen? And out of all the policies they considered, that was the policy eliminating rent, rent control that would worsen affordability the most so it would uh, drop over seventeen thousand households into being rent burden which basically means you know more than a third of your income is going to rent uh, a lot that a lot. is yes yeah. yeah well let's uh let's talk to the person who wants to bring it back and expand it <laughs> yes michael That's weinstein it. from the aids healthcare foundation we're here with Michael Weinstein, who's the head of the Los Angeles-based AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Uh, and uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. So uh, tell us why rent control, the rent control issue is so important to your organization. Well, we look at it both from a public health point of view and a social justice point of view. From a public health point of view, we see our clientele being rendered homeless or uh, being pushed further and further out from where our healthcare centers are. 
Uh, from a social justice point of view, uh, we're seeing mass displacement, not only in Los Angeles, but other major cities around the country and around the world. And uh, we feel like that uh, shelter is the most basic right, and people are being deprived of that. And we don't believe that the marketplace can handle providing shelter to everyone who needs it, particularly in the larger cities. So uh, how serious is this ballot measure push that you're doing? Or would you be happy if like the bill passed instead? We'd be thrilled if the bill passed. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's why I approached uh, Assemblyman Bloom last year uh, uh, to introduce the bill. Uh, we actually approached many assembly people. He was the only one who was willing to carry it. Um, but we were very uh, discouraged when it couldn't even get a committee hearing uh, in a, uh, you know, Democrat controlled, Democrat controlled uh, assembly. And, uh, you know, uh, we've been told basically that uh, it isn't going to go anywhere. Uh, you know, we hope that changes under pressure from this initiative, uh, but it's unlikely. Um, are there any examples of uh, rent control working either in California or perhaps in other states that you can point to and say, look, this is a really good model for how effective this particular measure could be? Well, first of all, repealing what's called Costa-Hawkins, which was a bill passed in 1995, which took control away from rent regulation from localities and gave it exclusively to the state, uh, is uh, what we're trying to change. Um, I feel prior to 1995 that you had some very good rent control laws in California. You had them in, in uh, Santa Monica. You had them in uh, West Hollywood. You had them in Berkeley, other places. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, if you're gauging uh, how well things have worked since 1995, you know, this is where you've seen, you know, this enormous increases in rent, uh, great uh, amount of displacement, people leaving these cities and the state as a whole. Uh, so I think that if you're talking about a social experiment, Costa Hawkins has failed terribly. So are there certain elements, you know, I mean, obviously, as you know, as things work their way through the legislative process, things get changed. You know, uh, Simon Bloom's bill right now is just simply a one line repeal of Costa Hawkins. But um, presumably, if that were to work its way through the process uh, and, and get signed at the end of the day, it would it would be cha would change from that. Um, are there certain elements that to a rent control bill that would be necessary for you to uh, say that's enough and to drop the initiative? Well, let's keep this as uncomplicated as possible. The reason why it's only one line is because we don't understand fundamentally why the state can, should control, have control over rent regulation. It makes no sense to us why localities, which are more familiar with the local conditions and have more direct relationship with the people in need, why they aren't the ones uh, setting these policies. I mean, we think that uh, it was a step backward and in the wrong direction and usurping control uh, from communities when it was taken away from them. And that's why we kept it that simple. I mean, if there was a serious negotiation about, um, you know, that would create some restrictions on what localities can do in terms of, of regulating rents, we'd enter into it. Hmm. Uh, but I think that, um, uh, you know, the, the Costa-Hawkins was a draconian measure that's had terrible impacts and that's the starting point that we come from. I, I'm curious, what would the kind of ideal rent control regime in L.A. look like to you, right? So Costa Hawkins basically says you can only impose rent control on units built before 
1995, right, or when the local rent control ordinance was passed, would you want to see L.A. put all units subject to rent control, regardless of when they were constructed, including new developments? So let's be very clear. That provision that said you have to freeze it wherever it was means that in L.A. it's 1978. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's I a mean, the pop- ordinance. Yes. Yeah. The population has drastically increased since 1978. Uh, I mean, I think that at a minimum, uh, we should take it up to uh, last year. I mean, I think at a minimum, uh, uh, you know, if, if people are building now uh, and they want to build uh, projects, uh, then I think, uh, you know, uh, and people are willing to pay whatever the traffic will bear. I wouldn't feel that strongly about that. But I mean, uh, basically, if the vast majority of the housing stock is not covered, uh, then you'll ha- you're going to continue to uh, have a problem. But it's not just a question of uh, how much you can raise the rent, but it's also a question of vacancy decontrol. And that's what's really fueling uh, gentrification, meaning that if every time a unit is vacated, it can go to the market rate, uh, then uh, you know when people that you know move out through the natural rotation, uh, every unit go doubles or triples that was occupied by somebody who could afford it. Uh, that, then you have more or less the same problem replicating itself. So to be clear, you would like it to LA to have the ability to and should LA should have rent control on every unit in the city. Well, not necessarily on the brand new ones, but the ones that are already uh, in existence uh, that have been built up until, let's say, you know, January 1 of uh, 16 or 17, mm-hmm. I-, I think is what's uh, appropriate. So uh, you're a veteran of many ballot measures locally and in the state. You know how much it costs to get these measures qualified and then how much it costs to uh, you know, fight a campaign for them. Are you committed to spending that that amount of money, that level on for this? Well, we are building a coalition. I mean, we have a large coalition of tenant organizations. Uh, we've already lined up the support of the California Nurses Association. We're we're talking to other unions and other uh, progressive people. I mean, uh, you know, it's not our desire to be the sole people who will fund this. But I think we've demonstrated in the past that when we commit to something. Uh, we, we are very serious about it. I'm curious, what's what's kind of surprised you, if anything, Michael, after you um, announced that you'd be pursuing this initiative? Was there any element of the public response that was like, huh, I didn't anticipate that happening, good or bad? Uh, I mean, most of it's pretty uh, predictable. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that um, politicians have ducked for cover. Uh, the, um, which politicians, I mean, just the other day, the mayor of Pasadena, you know, uh, expressed his, uh, concern about, about, uh, you know, rent control. I mean, sort of nonspecific concerns. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, Simon Bloom, who's been a supporter of repealing Costa Hawkins, you know, uh, he's saying that he's looking for a compromise. I don't know what that compromise, uh, will be, but I think that, um, you know, it's not surprising that the developers and the apartment owners have as much power as they do. I mean, what we have in California is essentially a one-party system. And uh, that means that um, 
you know, there's not a lot of stock in contributing to the Republicans. So almost all the money goes to the Democrats now. And uh, and so these very, very big lobbies um, can concentrate the donations on a few uh, members of the uh, Assembly in the Senate and really have a stranglehold over legislation that would regulate them. So you folks are hiring a lot of people to work on housing issues across the state um, generally. What what are they going to do? What do you mean, what are they going to do? Yeah, what is it, so what are they going to organize? Or like, what, what's, the, what's the plan? Like, are you going to develop policy briefs? Or what's kind of the, kind of the master idea here uh, for, for what you want your organization, the new organization that you're, that you're, that you're sure. helping to found? What, what do you, what, you know, what kind, of, what kind of player do you want to be in this, in this space, I guess? Is it just local? Is it statewide? Or what are, what are you trying to do? Okay, number one is, you know, we're going to have a petition drive, and that's going to be both paid and voluntary. So we're working to develop a plan with the coalition of groups we have to help us collect uh, petition signatures. So that's one important angle. Um, a second important angle is the grassroots organizing to get all of the uh, tenant justice groups uh, to mobilize, you know, in each individual city and community. That's another piece of it. Um, and, and then, you know, once the campaign is in full swing, then we're going to have public rallies. We're going to have, uh, you know, uh, going out and speaking to as many groups as possible. You know, I mean, I, state of politics in California being what it is, which is, you know, um, mostly about 30 second attack ads. I mean, uh, you know, that's going to be a part of it. But we believe that the grassroots aspect of it is uh, very, very important as well, I mean, we're going to be mobilizing to get the support of the Democratic Party, despite you know what some of the uh, people in the legislature may do. Uh, so I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of work for uh, people to do, and and you know uh, we're going to. It's not uh, been that popular a thing, but we're going to ring doorbells and make phone calls as well. Michael, it seems like a lot of your interest in this is the role of rent control and kind of preventing homelessness. I'm wondering if if you believe rent control would be kind of the most effective way of preventing homelessness. Well, I mean, I don't think it's that complicated. The rent's too damn high. And at a certain point, people... I think that's copyrighted, Michael. I don't know. Well, I mean, uh, then I'm sure that... Those people who copyright it probably won't mind me stealing it. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, you know, if you work as a barista, right, and you're making $15 an hour, okay, that's, um, you know, about $31,000 a year. You know, if you're paying, you know, a third of that, uh, you know, in rent, that's $10,000 a year, right? I mean, so... Uh, an average one-bedroom apartment is going to cost you double that amount. I mean, it's just uh, out of control. And what if you have children, right? I mean, you know, I came here as a teenager, uh, and my first apartment in L.A. Uh, was 100 bucks a month, including utilities. It was in a bad neighborhood, and it was, it was a crummy apartment. But, you know, I had a roof over my head. And, uh, you know, it, it used to be a great place to be poor in Los Angeles, but it isn't anymore. And it's a question of what kind of city do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a rich ghetto? I mean, that's already happened to Manhattan. It's already happened to San Francisco. 
you know, LA is not really that kind of a city. You know, it's not a high income city. Um, and, and it hasn't been a place that only elites can live in. And, you know, this is the moment of truth for us as a community. You know, what kind of community do we want to live in? Do we want to live, you know, you know, the latte life? Or do we want to actually have some diversity? Do we really want to have working people traveling an hour and a half to get to their job? Or do we want them to be able to live, you know, near where they work? I mean, what about teachers and firefighters and other people like that? Shouldn't they be able to live in this city? So, um, you know, you ran a, a really significant ballot measure in Los Angeles uh, earlier this year that was defeated pretty soundly. Um, wh why did that measure lose, in your opinion? I think it lost primarily because of uh, City Hall. And first of all, they made a bunch of false promises during the campaign that they would clean up their act, none of which they've acted upon. Um, and, and I think that the people were deceived. But, you know, I've been working for clean needles now for almost 30 years, okay? Um, also, how many times did the legalization of marijuana go on ballots across the country? You know, I take the long view of this, uh, you know, and um, we've also won a bunch of initiatives as well in our history. Uh, and, uh, you know, but it's about doing the right thing, win or lose. I mean, and the reality is, is that we had a debate about development uh, in Los Angeles, you know, that has never been had before. And the funny part of it is, you know, the LA Times, which relentlessly attacked me and attacked Measure S, basically agreed with almost all of it. They said over and over again that these general plan amendments that allowed people to game the system were wrong. Uh, you know, uh, they said that the environmental impact reports shouldn't be written by the developers. You know, uh, but, you know, the argument was that that our measure went too far. Um, but again, they've editorialized and written articles about how every single thing that the city said they were going to do to reform the system uh, during the campaign, they have not done. Um, in terms of what some of your clients tell you, how has kind of the rising cost of living in Los Angeles impacted their lives and their ability to uh, seek your services? Well, I mean, first of all, um, about 5% of all of our clients are homeless. And that's even with all of the uh, government-funded housing programs, including one specifically for people with HIV. And has that um, risen in recent years? Yes, drastically. Um, secondly, uh, our patients are being pushed further from where we provide health care. But, but I want to say, if I could digress for a minute, um, we recently bought a uh, single room occupancy hotel in downtown Los Angeles called the Madison. Uh, it's 220 units. We, we paid $8 million for it. Um, it's part of a new effort that we're going to be involved in uh, called the Healthy Housing Foundation. Our organization started as the AIDS Hospice Foundation, so we provided a place for people to live in the uh, waning days of their lives. But in this new effort, our goal is to show that we can preserve existing housing, that we, even when we're purchasing this housing, we can do it for far less than uh, others are doing it for, and that we can get people off the street immediately. Uh, we're also negotiating on buying a motel in Hollywood uh, where we're going to offer housing to families. Uh, so uh, the point here is that uh, the 
current system is broken. And in our history, we've created models uh, that have changed the system. Uh, we you used to have to get an appointment in a clinic to get tested for HIV. Now we do it out of our thrift stores. We do it out of mobile units. Uh, you know, we, we've uh, reinvented the way that care is provided all around the world. We're in 39 countries around the world, okay? And we do this sometimes uh, in the most rural of settings, uh, et cetera. So we want to disrupt the current system of the way that affordable housing is provided um, because we feel like we have to infuse urgency into it and we have to uh, be able to do it far cheaper uh, and faster if we're going to get people off the street. What, what, one other qu question for you, you know, we talk up here to um, academics, other experts in this space and also kind of state housing officials. They're all pretty unanimous in the idea that we need millions more um, uh, homes, uh, millions more market rate homes in California to help lower the price or the, really the only way they say to help meaningfully lower the price of, uh, of, of housing in the state. Do you believe that, 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 that that's true, that we need that much more market rate development in the, in the state to as the key or a key solution to the housing crisis? Yeah, that just sounds like trickle-down economics to me. I, I don't know why so-called progressives are buying into trickle-down. How does it make sense that a $5,000 a month apartment is going to help relieve the housing crisis for a person making less than $50,000 a year? I, I don't get it. But isn't that mean that there's one more place that someone said someone can't afford a $5,000 apartment to live in, and then that doesn't, that doesn't mean that, that that means they don't displace someone else? No, because there are two separate markets. The person who is paying $5,000 a month is not going to rent the place for $1,500 a month um, in the building from the 1940s. And conversely, the person who um, <clears throat> can only afford to pay $1,000 a month cannot afford that $5,000 apartment. I mean, I don't know where this so-called principle is operative. I mean, I don't see how that the, um, the canyon uh, the Wilshire Canyon, with all those, you know, very very high end condos, how that's uh, trickled down or relieved the housing problem. It works just the opposite with gentrification. In the area where I have my office and where I live in Hollywood, okay, this used to be um, predominantly working class Latino families in the flats. As these luxury towers have risen, which is primarily as a result of the policies pursued by our mayor who was the city council person here, as these towers have gone up, the things around it uh, that are older and, and, and not as fancy, they haven't gone down in price, they've gone up in price. So the person who can't afford the apartment in the tower, um, you know, goes to something nearby uh, and rents it uh, for twice what the family uh, that was there previously paid. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I grew up in New York, um, I've seen what's happened in New York. You know, I see what's happened in San Francisco. I'd like to s somebody to show me where um, building high-end apartments and houses has relieved the burden on working-class people. I haven't seen any example of it. No one so far has been able to cite one to me. Um, I'm going to personalize this a little bit, which may be a dangerous endeavor, but <laughs> I'm I'm someone who... You know, in every econ class I took in undergrad and graduate school, it was hammered into us that rent control is an inherently inefficient 
policy, right? It disincentivizes the production of new housing. It makes landlords less likely to maintain their existing apartments. It causes a housing shortage. And this is kind of an economic principle that even progressive economists like Paul Krugman agree with. Explain to me why I should vote for your initiative. Why, well, first why, of all, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm a strong supporter of Bernie Sanders, and Bernie Sanders' views on these things are completely opposite to the whole Democratic Party establishment, okay, um, on, um, on trade, on uh, banking regulation, on all these other issues, okay? I mean, part of the big civil war that's going on within the Democratic Party is all these so-called progressives are basically handmaidens to uh, billionaires, uh, but I mean, I grew up in New York City and we had very strict rent control. And, you know, uh, even members of my family owned buildings. They did very nicely. I mean, I cannot see how it is. People who inherited, you know, let's say a, 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 a uh, eight unit building from uh, their family and are now able and they own it outright and are now able to triple the rents. You know, I don't see how that helps the community at large. It enriches those individuals. Um, but, you know, again, I don't know why progressives um, buy into supply side economics, right, uh, which is basically what you're describing. Uh, I'm, I don't know if I would describe it that way, but uh, it's, it's a fairly taken point. Look, I mean, uh, you know, either you believe that the marketplace can take care of everything, right? Just let the marketplace do its thing and it'll supply healthcare, it'll supply education, it'll supply housing, you know, and everything else, transportation, everything else that people need, or else you believe that there needs to be public investment and there needs to be some regulation. I don't know why housing should be unregulated and just say that whatever the traffic will bear. But I mean, uh, you know, the burden is always placed on the reformers. I mean, could anything be more broken than the current homeless situation in Los Angeles? I mean, when I went down uh, while we were purchasing the Madison and I went down to Skid Row, I hadn't been down there in about a year and a half. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how many people are living on the street. Uh, and, and even where I am in Hollywood, I mean, uh, it was never like this before. And if we keep going the way we're going, we're gonna have hundreds of thousands of people on the street. Um, I mean, if you keep, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. And if we keep going in this direction, we're gonna have, uh, a third world city where you're gonna have, uh, you know, uh, the upper class group living handsomely and you're gonna have masses of people uh, who have no dignity whatsoever. Um, all right, is there, right. Is, there, is there anything else you'd like to ask, Liam? No, I'm good. Michael, anything else you wanna add or emphasize? Well, I was gonna say, you know, going back to your economics class. Yeah. Um, those are the same people who gave us the economic crisis in 2008, who said things can only go up, you know, and, and also, I mean, yeah, so I'll just say that, uh, you know, uh, I think we have to start from what people need mm -hmm. and we have to start with what's fair and we have to start with giving more advantage to uh, the people rather than to uh, the bureaucrats and the elites. I, I think there, there may be some people who would say, you know, uh, Obviously, the housing market needs some type of regulatory intervention. Let's find the regulatory interventions that are most optimal and most efficient. I think that's where the 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 debate would be. So, what are they proposing in that regard? I mean, that's that's, that's, that's a very part. good question. All right. Well, great.
Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Hey, you still there, Liam? Hello? All right.